Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to British Indie Film Club, a new limited podcast series brought to you by Biffa and Little White Lies magazine, where we meet some of the most exciting voices from the British independent film world. I'm Leila Latif. And I'm Karis Aldridge, and today we're going to be speaking to director Charlotte Reagan about her debut feature film, Scrapper, released in UK cinemas the 25th of August. So as previous listeners know, each episode we'll be meeting a talented actor or director to find out how they got their break in film, what they love most about their profession, and what the future holds. To celebrate Biffa's 25th birthday, we'll also be asking our guests to pick a film from the Biffa archives to discuss, either a cult classic or a contemporary gem from the past 25 years. From those of you who are regular listeners to Truth and Movies, you may recognise me. I'm Leila Latif, a film critic, a broadcaster and a columnist. And I'm Karis, a film sales exec and podcast host. I've worked across film sales, marketing and distribution on UK independent films and participated in the Creative England producing course supporting up and coming UK producers. But how are you? It's very nice to see you again, not least because we've got a very exciting guest. But what have you been up to of late? Do you know what, actually, I've been recently getting back into some like classics that I haven't watched before and this is going to make you cringe because you're going to be like how have you gone your entire life and not seen it but um I've revisited Seinfeld (laughs) never watched before so I was like now is the perfect time and um there's another one that I watched recently that I was like I cannot believe I haven't seen this oh okay this is really bad I had never seen Pretty Woman before and I watched it and I was like huh okay so that's that's Pretty Woman. I don't know why this entire time I just assumed that it was it was a comedy because it's Rob Marshall, but like it, it, it there is no comedy in that. <laughs> like it's quite dark. Yeah, that is a very interesting one in terms of how it's aged. Not just in terms of kind of like depictions of sex work, but I think the kind of most remarkable thing about it is the kind of depiction of wealth. Like, I don't know that you could have a character be your kind of dashing leading man who is, like, just this, like, capitalist shill who just wants to, like, take companies, break them apart and, like, squeeze every, like, ounce of profit out of them. But he's literally a slime ball. There is not a single redeeming quality to this man. Like, I do not understand what... like how anyone fell in love with him on screen (laughs) it's insane and the thing that I found really funny watching it is that um the one the one thing that kind of made him fall in love (laughs) 
<laughs> Julia Roberts is that when she goes to the loo, he thinks that she's doing drugs, but she's just flossing her teeth. And that was the big thing that made yeah. him think, oh my gosh, she's just, she's so cute. I love her. And that, I was just like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because I think all movies kind of are a little bit like a picture of the time in which they were in and like that kind of 80s Reaganomics, greed is good kind of feeling that's in this. And it's like, the thing that fundamentally it's about is how great social mo- mobility can be because it's like, oh, it, it's fine. Like, it doesn't matter that she's kind of de- left all these people behind and she's come from this world, which is kind of kind of a consequence of the horrific capitalist behavior of these banks. And I believe she passes a dead body in like the first scene and stuff, which people, yeah, people. People remember the makeover. They don't remember that part. And it's like, but what were our values? Our values were that if you can appreciate opera and look great in a dress, then you can rise up the ranks. Then that's a happy ending for everyone involved. (laughs) Uh, Do not believe in greed being good, which uh, I suppose links us to the other big topic of the moment. I mean, we've we touched a little bit on the WGA strikes on our, one of our early episodes, but now we've got SAG in the mix too, where we've passed 100 days and um, things are not looking good for the movie business. No, not at all. It's, uh, it's pretty like unprecedented time. I don't think this has happened where both SAG and the WGA have, have striked together since I think the 70s yeah. it, or the 80s and the president of SAG at the time. time was Ronald Reagan just to tie it all back together yeah <laughs> there you go <laughs> full circle moment um so it's yeah it's it's a very odd time for the business and I think what's stranger is to get this far into the strike and not feel remotely close to resolution mm-hmm. I mean obviously we're also coming into an interesting period which is you know the beginning of the big awards season it kind of usually starts with toronto and then goes all the way through to the oscars uh which is what february of next year so you know and that time is all about an awards campaign which is all about the actors so yeah it's a very interesting time and i think Mm. a lot of um these big kind of festival driven award driven movies are really having to take a beat and think about their strategy and what they want to do. Yeah, you've got a number of movies that have changed their release dates because of this and because of the lack of talent to be able to promote them. So it's just a very strange time. Yeah, and but we're also kind of getting this strange, um, you know, fractures within all of these like productions. Because I think it was something interesting that Seth Rogen spoke about is that, you know, within also the the production companies that are negotiating like you know Warner Brothers doesn't necessarily have the same goals as a Netflix it doesn't you know as an Amazon Prime as a Universal and they're all kind of trying to take each other out in the same way in these negotiations but so we've sort of ended up now with like different people with different goals meeting demands in different ways and there's there's been like an interim agreement which I'm I think that this is going to be what changes a lot of things because A24 has basically met their demands and they're allowed to kind of keep going and make their movies and um, when it comes to Venice um, the Michael Mann film Ferrari has been allowed to because it's an independent production not associated with the striking companies 
it seems very complicated to me, but basically Adam Driver is being forced to do press, which is very funny because he clearly hates doing press. Uh, but we'll get like that one glitzy premiere. So yeah, I think it might be interesting over the next few months that maybe independent productions who are going to meet the demands of SAG and the WGA will actually take up a lot of more space in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's incredibly telling that uh, the independents are able to meet the demands of the SAG and WGA requirements. I think that says a lot, uh, as opposed to the you know bigger corporations and streamers who are um, adamant not to even consider their uh demands so the a24 projects that have been granted waivers are mother mary which is the anne hathaway michaela cole movie which i am so excited about i remember seeing the announcement and being like this looks amazing and death of a unicorn which is paul rudd and jenna ortega as well which also sounds amazing well we at least in the meantime have a couple of exciting movies coming out not least scrapper which uh premiered at sundance um and, you know, has gotten a lot of buzz and now is finally going to be making its way into cinemas. Um, I think people are really going to like this one. Definitely. I absolutely loved it. I've already watched it three times. So, yeah. <laughs> and last week you went down to Picture House Central to catch up with Charlotte Reagan about her incredible de- debut feature, Scrapper, which is a joyful comedy bubbling with hope. Living alone since her beloved mother died, 12-year-old Georgie fills the flat they shared with her own special magic. But when her absent father, Jason, played by Harris Dickinson, turns up out of the blue, she's forced to confront reality. It's a dreamy, witty and unmissable tale of family and fresh starts. It is really lovely. And Charlotte Reagan has had a really interesting career so far. Um, I mean, she's only 29, by the way. So, But when she was 15, she started shooting these kind of no-budget music videos for her rapper mates in Islington, in North London. Since then, in 2016, her debut short Standby premiered at Toronto Film Festival uh, and went on to win a prize at Sundance and nominated for a BAFTA. And her follow-up shorts, Fry Up and Dodgy Dave, were both nominated at a number of festivals, including Sundance and Berlin. Um, So, you know, fantastic kind of festival run for her shorts, Mm -hmm. which is great. And in 2020, she was selected as a screen star of Tomorrow. If you don't know what that is, it's really kind of prestigious and it's a great way to kind of platform emerging talent it's added a crazy alumni including Riz Ahmed in 2006 Dev Patel um Daniel Kaluuya John Boyega Phoebe Waller-Bridge and someone you might have heard of Florence Pugh so yeah (laughs) I actually am aware of another crazy connection between Scrapper and Florence Pugh because um this film was cast by the kind of legendary Shaheed Baig who's kind of known for like her street casting and going out and just into the community and finding these rare gems. And by the flyering process that she found Lola Campbell for this thing, that's how she also found Florence Pugh. Florence Pugh responded to one of her flyers and she cast her in her first things. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, and she's she's also the casting director for things like um, like Peaky Blinders. I mean, she does loads of stuff, right? She's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, fantastic casting. I mean, Lola, you will immediately fall in love with her in this movie. She is so charismatic on screen. Just the energy that she brings. Um, very naturalistic, very charming. Uh, but yeah, it's got Scrapper generally has got such a great team behind it. I mean, you've got Michael Fassbender and Evie Yates as um, exec producer. Evie Yates being the producer behind, you know, Rye Lane and a bunch of other big 
movies that have uh, been released this year. You've also got Molly Manning Walker, who is Charlotte's friend, collaborator. She is her director of photography in this. And she also debuted her own feature, How to Have Sex in Cannes this year. So both of them together have been like, you know, they've had an incredible year. Um, so no, it's it's such a such a great debut that I think she'll be incredibly proud of. And, you know, as much as it kind of sounds like a small indie film, and it is, it, it's very, very pretty. So like, it's I'm glad it kind of got the big cinema release and I encourage people to try and watch it on a big screen and kind of get caught up in how, you know, whimsical and magical it all is. It's nice to be able to see these kind of joyful depictions of working class uh, people and their lives. Um, and, you know, obviously we had a really interesting and insightful discussion with Sa- Samantha Morton um, a couple of episodes ago about her feelings on, you know, working class depictions. And it's interesting to see how that has kind of developed and flourished for this kind of new generation of filmmakers. So, yeah. Well, listeners enjoy. It's a wonderful interview with a really exciting new director. Hello. Hi, Charlotte. Thank you so much for joining me today on the British Indie Film Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Obviously, I have to say a huge, huge congratulations for Scrapper. It is such a beautifully heartfelt film that really packs emotional punch. I would be lying if I uh, said that I didn't get pretty teary uh, a few points in the movie. So yeah, no, massive congratulations, truly. Um, And I feel like this film is going to be really celebrated for its vibrant and fresh perspective on the working class narrative. Why was it really important for you to turn that British kind of social realism genre on its head? I don't really know, to be honest. I think I'd like maybe uh, grown up watching lots of working class films that I just like didn't recognise the, not the stories they were telling, but the way they were kind of portraying people that were just like not capable of being funny or having joy or, you know, they were always like so desaturated and they made me leave the cinema like feeling so much heavier than when I went in. And I guess the world I remembered was like full of joy and like you felt like you were like living in Butlins because like all your friends were there and like you could just like not like, you know, knock out for everyone and just play around all day with such a like close community that looked out for each other. It felt like so safe and happy. So I think I'd always wanted to see that in a film, I guess. Uh, no, absolutely. And I feel like it's exactly that. It's such a departure from that more sombre, greyish setting of that genre that we see all the time, which is exactly what you're saying. And instead we've got, you know, ice cream coloured houses. We've got these like lush green parks where all these kids are playing. When you were initially storyboarding for the film, what were the discussions that you were having about kind of creating Georgie's world? Uh, yeah, we always were like mad intentional with like, you know, if it like pisses down with rain, then there's only so much even the iconic Molly Manning Walker can do with her lenses that will change that. Like it will still look grey and desaturated. So we always wanted to find an estate that kind of had that like community feel that had a centre where kids played. And then I got really obsessed with wanting to paint the houses, which fear the producer like absolutely hated because <laughs> no council wanted us to paint like a row of houses like pastel colours. Um, but luckily, they were convinced. Who knows how? Maybe a little bit of like cash in hand vibes. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Like, we don't need to know how. We <laughs> yeah, just know yeah, it happens. Yeah. It happens. <laughs> yeah. um, what I was going to ask is, so obviously this film has been. I was going to say four years in the making, but actually probably a lot longer than that, because it was in 2019 that uh, BBC and BFI kind of came on board with it. How much do you feel like the project has grown since all the way back then, if you even remember what the project was at that point? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's changed massively. Um, I've always hated, like, which is fear my producer hates, but I don't really like redrafting, so every draft is, like, totally new. Um, and the first draft was, like, about a teenage boy and his nan that were, like, running away from the police, and it was much more of, like, a Guy Ritchie-esque film. So every draft, the characters change, the world changes, so who knows, like, what has been before this yeah yeah yeah. i think i read somewhere i can't remember who said this maybe you guys will remember in it with the epic film knowledge but someone said in a talk once yeah and i don't even know who it was and if it was someone i like they were <laughs> like when you write a script you should like um put it in a cupboard once you're done and then two weeks later start again and anything you don't remember doesn't deserve to be in it and i don't know why i just obsessed over it i don't even know if i rated the person who said it so <laughs> terrible thing to suddenly live by so we do that every draft and theo's always like devastated that yeah that's happening but i feel like there's a lot of like very purposeful stylistic choices you know we've got talking spiders in the style of your 90s you know computer game a mockumentary style footage of characters talking about georgie and this kind of darting camera footage that mimics the kind of short attention span of a 12 year old was all of that in the script from the get-go or was it kind of coming up on the fly as you were shooting yeah yeah a bit of both i mean like there was always super even in the first version there was very like stylized sequences like um and they just kind of grew and changed over time. Um, with when like Molly came on board, she had loads of incredible ideas that were much better than mine, thank God, and saved a lot of my ideas. And then the spiders, they were meant to be foxes, but Theo said we couldn't have foxes for some reason. He said they were quite spenny foxes. And, I feel like uh, I heard this really randomly um, from Fleabag, because obviously she had a fox in the oh, and she always talks expensive. about how it was a nightmare. Oh, really? Supposedly, so there yeah. you go. I yeah, thought yeah. he was just lying to me. <laughs> trying to sell I me think there is some truth in that yeah yeah that's weird. fair yeah that's so much better though so much more cinematic than spiders <laughs> isn't it just and you've already kind of mentioned um some of your regular collaborators and friends molly manning um walker who's your dop and then you have alina montoni as your production designer it must have been really nice to have you know friends and, and people you felt comfortable with and had a shorthand with when working on your first feature do you feel like that really helped to kind of elevate you and what you were able to to do yeah yeah 100 percent like they like yeah picked up all the slack of all the terrible decisions i was making like every day and like made everything better but beyond that i guess it's like the vulnerability that you're allowed to have with each other or just what you're allowed to share with one another it just like creates this space where no one's being like precious about their role or what they get involved in it just felt like everyone was really like making this thing together I don't know yeah um, and obviously we have to talk about these amazing performances we've got this great two-hander with Harris Dickinson who you've worked with previously on your short film Oats and Barley and then this amazing newcomer Lola Campbell who caught your attention through her self-tape talking about home bargains which is incredibly relatable. I feel like everyone loves home bargains. I kind of want to know what was on her shopping list. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was just... like it was like the slush puppies. Oh, okay, yeah. but that is fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like the mixture. <laughs> she loves a shop that does a mixture of like sweets and slush puppies and the home items because she loves both of those things. So it's that it's yeah, a perfect combination. And, and yeah. slush puppies. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what would you say were the biggest challenges directing a child, specifically one who has never professionally acted before? Um, I don't know. I always find it much easier than directing adults, like obviously Harris aside, but 
it's usually like such a like ego driven thing mm -hmm. or as where with kids there there's none of that you know they're self-conscious but it's in such a different way to to us as to adults and they just come to the set each day like thinking what we're doing is such a great time and then that can kind of be quite quite contagious yeah, yeah definitely yeah contagious the wrong word. um but yeah i can't i'm trying to remember what was difficult some mornings she would like not want to act but we realized like a week in that it was just because if she hasn't eaten breakfast she's in a really bad mood and she wouldn't eat the breakfast incredibly on set. relatable again yeah, yeah. Again, yeah we can all... can't have hungry actors can <laughs> no, you, you can't. it's impossible we understand it we started having to order her what did we order her greg's sausage rolls every morning nice. or mcdonald's breakfast it was those two because she wouldn't eat any of the catering like, at all or none of the <laughs> snacks her and alan would form like a little union where they'd be like look we've spoke and we don't like the snacks and we can't carry on if the snacks stay this bad and yes yeah, so kind of have to admire yeah <laughs> like they're really putting their foot down but <laughs> yeah. you know they'll yeah, get yeah. far in this industry with that attitude <laughs> so it's, it's what's important isn't it snacks yeah. <laughs> exactly um but no honestly lola is so fantastic in this her kind of like assured nature that like very cheeky comic timing the eye rolls everything was just was brilliant I feel like um, the performances just feel very authentic and a lot of that is from really Britney written dialogue which is all you um, but I was also wondering if there was any space for improvisation on set was were there bits that were improvised I'm hoping that the dance was improvised or was that oh yeah the dance was weirdly a dance that Lola had been teaching us all for the whole shoot okay. Yeah, I don't know where she, I don't know where, her and Alan, I think, whenever they had breaks, um, they would, like, learn dances together and then come and teach it to all the crew. So that was just something we took off her because we shot the dance scene, I think, on the last day. So it was just one that we stole from Lola, so again. And then there was loads of improv, like, Lola and Alan in particular, when they were together, would just talk rubbish for hours and it was always much better than my dialogue ever could have been, you know, their, their writing's much better than mine. So yeah, tons of improv for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. so good because children are just so naturally funny, aren't they? Yeah, Which is yeah. great. And something you've kind of touched on already and something I really loved about the film is that sense of community. I feel like it kind of opens with a bit of a sense of a home alone scenario almost with Georgie kind of masterminding her way into living by herself. Um, and she feels, you know, confident that she can tackle life alone. And then the reality is actually there's a number of people kind of silently looking out for her and by the end of the film she kind of really accepts and welcomes that and I imagine similarly for you coming onto a film as both a writer and a director that you would, might put a lot of pressure on yourself to kind of do everything but how do you feel like the kind of film community helped you to produce what is now you know this amazing movie? Yeah, yeah I, I don't know really like I think I've got so many friends who have, have made features before me or in the process of making them that like it's such an incredible support system and then having someone like molly who obviously directs as well like her films like incredible uh, like it means that you have all these people that are willing to like do your job when you're doing it terribly which is like such a support system um but yeah, Theo, my producer, very like we've been close for a really long time and very much share both of our roles. And it's just having all those friends that have done it. And then the execs like Fahana, who's at Film4 now, is just incredible. And Eva, they were like very much like, how can we make this the right space for you to create? Which is like a mad privileged position to be in for sure. And so many great people that just like kind of do it for you and then you get to take all the credit. And it's a great time for It's a good time for everyone. Yeah, yeah. No, it's amazing. It's really, really cool. I feel like the charm of, of the performances from um, 
from Lola and, and Harris is that it kind of comes from that role reversal of Georgie and Jason. You know, Georgie is this old soul who's kind of forced to grow up really quickly due to these very difficult circumstances of her mum passing away. And then you have Jason, who is desperately clinging on to his youth and questionably bleached hair, uh, living in Ibiza, running away from all these like real life adult responsibilities. What was it about Harris where you thought this, he just makes the perfect Jason? Because he's so good at this. Yeah, yeah, he's just got like such a mad childish energy. <laughs> and I don't mean to say he's immature. It's just like his outlook on the world is still got that magic that like kids have as well, if you know what I mean. Like he is just quite like magic to spend time with. And he's like, obviously he's an incredible actor that goes without saying, but he's also like incredibly selfless and like, goes into a scene thinking about how he can make it the best scene for everyone, you know, and how you can collaborate to create the best scene possible. He doesn't go into a scene thinking entirely about his own performance, you know, which I do find is, uh, that's why I love working with young actors as well, because they're just like having fun and they're not thinking about how can I dominate this scene or, mm. you know. Or are self-conscious in any way, because yeah, not worried yeah. about their looks. Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. at all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not aware of the camera in the same way. Or, mm. and, and Harris has that same kind of selflessness and like great energy that he brings to set yeah yeah no oh, amazing um and i feel like as an audience member we're also confronting a lot of the difficult emotions through the lens of georgie this 12 year old girl and i think there's something really kind of heartbreaking but also really refreshing about a child's outlook on life which is you know something that you've also mentioned um did you learn a lot or anything really about yourself while shooting this and like living in georgie's world for such a long period of time yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think we all did. Like, we all just left it thinking we should be a lot more like kids and, like, reconnect with, like, what made us, like, love life at that time and be, like, super present and in the moment. Um, otherwise, I'm trying to think of what I learned. I think Lola is, like, slowly trying to teach me to be more fashionable, which counts as a learn. <laughs> yeah, something I'm learning. We must also, obviously, it is the Biffa podcast. We want to dive into the into the Biffa archives, talk about um, The Guard, which is the film that you chose. So this is in 2011. It is written and directed by John McDonough. It's starring Brendan Gleeson, Don Cheadle, and Mark Strong about this kind of no-nonsense FBI agent and an irreverent Irish cop. What was it about the movie that kind of spoke to you or inspired you in any way? Um, I, I haven't watched it for a while, but I remember the impact it had at the time, I guess, was just, just like how he balanced that kind of like tonal difference, you know, with like dealing with something that was happening, but then just the humour, which is like so, like Brenda Gleeson is incredible yeah, at bringing that to everything, do you know what I mean? Um, and I think it was like how flawed he lets his characters be and how he kind of doesn't try to make them do like a full like change on their character by the end. I suppose like films like that have always like frustrated me where they like learn their fatal flaw at the beginning and then by the end they've like resolved it. I think probably just because I'm jealous in it and I'm like <laughs> I wish I could do that with my flaws within like a six month period but it doesn't happen. Um, so I, I just love how flawed everyone is and then it's like it's like the opening scene and how quickly that defines like his character with like the lads in the car 
car that have that car crash and then he just like takes the drugs out of their pocket and just that like, I've always thought is like the best opening to a film ever like it's my favorite opening it says so much about the character and like grabs you and tells you how flawed he is so quickly that yeah. I've always loved that I almost picked like a super I know it is it still counts as an arty film isn't it? but I was like should I pick an arty film so I look more arty but I was like I just, just can't do it in it <laughs> <laughs> no no it's something to like resonates with you and I think that's really perfect and like you speak really well about yeah like how brilliantly the world building is in that and how much of it is showing and not telling like that you don't have to have lots of lengthy exposition like you know exactly who these characters are from the outset and that is a real testament to the filmmaking and I think it's like exactly the same in Scrapper um, and they are two very different films actually but I would say the similarity is you know you have again a bit of a two-handed performance and a really strong community voice in both so it's quite nice actually to like see a bit of an overlap. Um, oh, Charlotte, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank yeah, you so you much for so much. your time and the best of luck with everything with Scrapper. So, oh, I think if I've mentioned to you before, Karis, that like coming of age is not my preferred genre, but I'm beginning to feel that I need to kind of reassess that about myself because we're getting to so many exceptions. I don't know whether that is really true anymore. Yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of very stage schooly kids out there. And I think when you're doing the subtle emotions of kind of coming of age, uh, maybe getting a really natural performance out of a child isn't so great. I mean, that's why I suppose someone like a River Phoenix in, in Stand By Me feels so special. It definitely will and has um, found a lot of parallels or a lot of critics have definitely kind of uh, likened it to After Sun for good reason. I mean, I think there is that same kind of father-daughter bond obviously is is uh, so paramount to the entire film. And um, I mean, that both feature debuts, both called Charlotte. That's just pure coincidence, <laughs> but quite funny. But then it's also interesting because like, you know, with the film that she made, I was expecting her to choose um, some sort of like, I know, twinkly, magical realism, delightful film. Um, for hers and she kind of went the opposite direction with um, The Guard yes I know I was a bit surprised actually as well I think even she surprised herself as you'll hear in that interview but yeah if you don't know The Guard it's a kind of comedy crime thriller a buddy cop comedy I suppose it's John McDonough who is obviously the brother of Martin McDonough and I think again this movie a lot of people draw parallels between this and In Bruges which is his brother's big famous project which also stars Brendan Gleeson um yeah it's a it's a fantastic little movie and really packs a punch in only about 90-ish minutes yeah and Brendan Gleeson is so good in this I always kind of assumed that that what I was watching with um In Bruges and um with the Banshees of Inner Sharon was this like rare connection that Brendan Gleeson had with Colin Farrell and now I'm kind of watching this I'm reminded that he can have an incredible chemistry with like you know a satsuma he's just like one he's just got this kind of soulful um sensitive way about him that all of his characters even someone as kind of uh curmudgeonly as uh as sergeant jerry boyle is in this um just has this kind of something so irresistible to them and you're drawn to them in a way that kind of it makes it very believable that everybody else around them would feel that way as well if that makes sense absolutely i think that gleason has such a talent for 
playing deeply flawed characters that people are still incredibly invested in. I think, uh, you know, it's easy for someone else to play that character and it'd be quite detestable <laughs> or mm. not, maybe not detestable, but, you know, um, there there's just such a charm to his performance. Yeah, I, it, it's one of those things that, like, I so think of, like, the, you know, the recent um, films of, like, both the McDonough's as being kind of, like, quintessential Irish films. But, like, to kind of taking a step back, they're also, like, working-class Irish films. I mean, like, McDonough's plays I'm a huge fan of. Hated Three Billboards, will hate that till my dying day. But everything else, when he's in Ireland and he's actually getting into the mindset and the kind of communities of, like, what are working-class Irish communities, he... He captures something that feels like very true whilst kind of this side of uh, this side of the pond. We do tend to still have a little bit of focus on like the period dramas and the goings on of the kind of upper echelons of class. I mean, I would say that there's just there's so much fantastic Irish talent out there. I mean, you've obviously got the new Paul Mescal, Saoirse Ronan movie that they just released the still for that. I've completely forgotten what it's called. I think it's called The Foe, is it? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And last year, A Quiet Girl was kind of the one that was the big surprise being Oscar nominated, which was another coming of age drama. Um, and the, all of the dialogue was mostly in Irish rather than in English, which was, you know, quite exciting to see kind of the different stories and different perspective and very like authentic stuff coming from the Emerald Isle. Yeah, there's a, a, a bunch of kind of fantastic projects coming out of Ireland at the moment. You've got the Andrew Scott Paul Mescal project called All of Our Strangers, which should be coming out later this year as well. Um, so yeah, just a lot to be excited about uh, there. And I hope that that kind of continues. I like the idea of the Oscars just being completely <laughs> full of Irish talent and then just all kind of going there and having an absolute jolly. So yeah, I think more of that, please in my opinion. Wouldn't, wouldn't that just be great if like we had like this kind of international celebration of film and unlike, you know, how Bong Joon-ho used to refer to it as being a very local awards season, we had all incredible cinema from like Iran and Korea and like Senegal and like, you know, that was actually what happened this year. Oh my gosh, could you imagine? That would be amazing. But yes, if anyone is interested in watching The Guard, it is still available online um, on Film 4 for free. So definitely check it out because it is a fantastic film. And of course, do not forget to check out Scrapper in cinemas on the 25th of August. And thank you so much again to Charlotte Reagan for being such a fantastic guest. Biffa celebrates, promotes and supports independent filmmaking from filmmakers in the UK. Keep up to date with their latest releases and exciting names in independent film by following Biffa on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube and Twitter. Or X now depending on the day of the week. We'll see. That seems to be in flux. But at any rate, this podcast was produced by TCO London. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.